0: Welcome to the Australian Hapticulture Podcast. How are you going, Luke? Good and yourself, mate. Good mate. Let's just get straight into it, eh?
1: Yeah. This week we've got a very exciting guest joining us. We are joined by the one and only, Steve Wilson, who is a renowned Australian reptile author, photographer, traveller, and fauna surveyor. Steve, welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you on here, and uh, I've been looking forward to this one for a long time coming now. Yeah. Thanks
2: for having me on, folks. I'm glad we managed to um, work out a date that suits us all with your travels and mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You were just in the field recently, weren't you? I just got back on uh, last um, uh, Sunday from two, two weeks, doing a bit of a 4,000K loop through central Queensland, looking at um, a group of little burrowing skinks called Larista's. Oh, wicked. Nice. We've got a few new species on that trip, so that's good. So watch this space. I can't say anything else about it beyond that fact, but yeah. Awesome. Looking forward to hearing Exciting, though.
1: Yeah. So um, Steve has worked with the likes of Jerry Swan to create some of the best field guides to date, including books such as A Complete Guide to Reptiles of Australia. What snake is that and what lizard is that? Uh, Steve has also got countless papers that he's written on, co-authored on various reptiles and other animal species. Um, yeah, I have to say, like, uh, as, as, you know, maybe you had a chat with Jason before yeah. it, but I think we <laughs> both own all of your books. So, you know, we're, we're fan-born here.
2: So. Just signing a contract for a new one, um, which I'll be starting on in the next couple of days. Give myself a year to finish it. Just piecemeal bits here and there. Um, hundred lizards—a global perspective. So that'll be the stuff I've done, both in Australia and overseas, with photography. So. Nice. i look forward nice. to that. Now, yeah. got to find some sort of use for the Komodo dragons and marine iguanas, don't I? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, that's just it, right? Like, you've done so much work with the Australian stuff, but yeah. you've done so much work with uh, some exotic animals as well,
2: too. some pretty interesting times travelling, both in Australia and overseas, that's for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, that's amazing.
2: Well, no doubt we're going
1: to uncover a few stories as we get along the way, but why don't you just start us off as, um, you know, basically a bit of a basic question to so say people can kind of get a bit of a gauge on yourself, but what kind of got you kick-started in the interest in animals?
2: I don't know what started it, but I've always wondered, what is it that sparks that wire in a kid's brain? Um, It may have been when I found a dead cicada on the ground when I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I certainly remember that very vividly and I kept it in a box, this dead cicada, until it moulded away. I remember uh, finding tadpoles. I remember being given a frog. Just bear with me. Sorry about this. Someone no, gave right. me a someone gave me a frog, which I think is probably a Ewing's tree frog. Looking back out over the decades, but at the time, using the only book I had, which was the How and Why Wonder Book of Reptiles and Amphibians, I identified it as a North American spring peeper. <laughs> <if it wasn't. laughs> um, but anyway, um, cicadas, frogs, bits and pieces, tadpoles, lizards down the local quarry, and it just it just. Fire the synapses in my brain. I've never really done anything else since I was tiny, so it's just been embedded within me all my life. So I don't know what triggered it or what the event was, and I don't know why some people have this drive in them. They, you know, they just can't help it. You know, when I was a kid, we'd go out chasing skinks, and the other kids would come along too. So we'd all be doing it. We'd all be having fun. But they were sort of in it because of the thrill of that. If I wasn't there, they'd go and do something else instead. Yeah. And as we parted, they drifted off and did other stuff that I just kept on this passion.
1: It's a, it's a funny sort of trajectory, really, because usually you talk to a lot of people and they kind of have like that particular moment where something clicked in their head. But there well, is quite a, a few people like yourself where they can't give an answer.
2: I do remember, I do remember when I was a kid. I would have been maybe six or seven, and someone, one of my sisters or one of the kids down the road called out, there's a blue tongue in the Henderson's garden. And not knowing what a blue tongue was, I sort of stuck my head over the fence and here's this magnificent eastern blue tongue lying there. Um, That stuck in my brain. So these various formulative things, I don't even know what order they were in. Except, I don't know, the Cicada was probably the first one. <laughs> because I was really young. So, so, what
1: kind of took it from being just like that generalized interest as a kid and, and a bit of a memory like that? What kind of like was the real point where it kind of really fired off for you and it just uh, kind of like escalated to that next level?
2: Well, once I found, once I started finding these things, I became a collector. I had to have stuff. And that stuff consisted of anything to do with natural history, I had to have it. And my very indulgent parents uh, allowed me my own special room for this in the house, my wow. specimen room. And in that room I had, I had skulls, I had um, reptiles in alcohol, I had some live reptiles, I had... I insects, I had fossils, I just had everything to do with natural history. I I gathered it around me and then as I was sort of getting older, still doing all of this, I started focusing more and more on on, on reptiles. Um, I hasten to add I'm not a good keeper. I don't think I've ever really been a good keeper, but I didn't really know how to, I didn't know how to focus my attention. I just had to have reptiles around me. And then the critical point, which really turned the direction of my passion and my focus, happened in my very early 20s. Um, A bunch of us moved from Melbourne to Alice Springs. I'd been there a couple of times. I'd launched a couple of trips there when I was about 18 from Melbourne, including in in a... Volkswagen Beetle along all the rough roads up there, and <laughs> hitchhiked up there, and back. did all this stuff, fell in love with the Arid Zone and the agamids and the, the snakes and all that sort of stuff. And I gathered up my whole collection and all my goodies and waved tearful goodbye to my parents in the back, in the front door at Melbourne and drove my new Ute up to Alice Springs. And we got an old, with a fellow named Mike Gillum, who still lives there now. He wrote a lovely little piece on Sidonaya many years ago. Um, So we got out the back of this caravan park and we got an old hulk of a caravan and we bought all these aquariums in Alice Springs and filled it up with reptiles. Then we got another old hulk of a caravan we filled it up with reptiles. And then people started to arrive. Reptile people started to arrive in Alice Springs and set up around us Uh, Richard Wells Um Mike Gillam, uh, Mike Swan, uh, Peter Rankin, who tragically died very young several years later. Uh, Graham Gow called in. Paul Horner came and visited. Um, all of these people. We basically had ourselves sort a of little commune out the back of the caravan park, and we'd drive the roads for reptiles. We'd catch them. We'd sit around. We'd talk about them. And Peter Rankin taught me the difference between oh, yeah, it's a striped skink. Well, no, it's probably to notice as Alisa and here's a key, and this is how you work your way through the key, you know, stripes and spots and prefrontals and da 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 He taught me all of that. And a, a really tragic thing happened at that time. We had a minus six night, and basically all my collection died overnight because aquariums is no place to have a reptile, you know, just sitting there without able to thermally buffer itself. And that was tragic, but it occurred at the same time that I was picking up a camera. And that was a critical point where I decided, look, I, it's no good me keeping reptiles. No, they're not doing any any well, having me looking after them. But with a camera, I can collect all reptiles. I can collect blind snakes, loristas, tonotuses, pythons. I can collect all these images and start acquiring an image back so that was what started me on this quest to sort of photograph all the species I could collect you know keeping live reptiles is fantastic I adore looking at other people's collections but we all have different skills and mine turned out to be you know sort of finding them and photographing them and eventually writing about them
1: Yeah, it's definitely a unique set of skills. There's a lot of people out there that are starting to get into the photography side of things, probably more so, you know, it's a bit more mainstream nowadays. um, But, yeah, to to be able to key them out and and do what you've done, you know, that's the kind of stuff I think you and I both probably dream of, Jason, is being able to do a lot of this. But, like, let's kind of have a look at it this way too because, like, we're not going to lie, there's a few years between you and us and, Back then, that probably wouldn't have been like a very normal thing to do, whereas it seems oh, no. pretty normal these days for us to yeah, have visits right. and
2: stuff. wasn't normal. No, strange. It was really strange. But in those Alice Springs days, there was enough of us in town that the barman and yardman in the Alice Springs pub was a reptile guy, the janitor at the Alice Springs High School was a reptile guy, the guy fettling on the railways was a railway. It was a reptile guy. Uh, the cleaner at the high school was a reptile guy. All, all these friends of mine that just sort of came in. So amongst ourselves, it was quite mainstream. But, yeah, yeah okay. strange. Oh, yeah, it wasn't normal. No. And uh, to this day, I mean, um, a lot of people think it's pretty bizarre. Yeah. But there's a lot more literature around now. So, you know, there's there's magazine there's a huge amount of stuff on on the social media and stuff yeah that's right exposure to reptiles when i was growing up um i had warrell's reptiles of australia and i had coggers reptiles in color you know yeah yeah and they the were one ones, of my yeah. guru books and Cogger's first big volume of Reptiles and Amphibians first edition came out while we were in that caravan park in Alice Springs and we all ogled over it and there's things that I've never heard of.
0: Yeah, it would have been like a
2: Bible almost. Yeah, it was. was. (laughs) Then I shifted to Perth following reptiles. I thought, well, there's all sorts of stuff I've never seen in WA and um, started photographing all that stuff there. And it was when I was in Perth. I suddenly, I sort of dawned on me that, well, I've got these pictures now. Maybe I can do something with some of those. So I, yeah, off off the pat, wrote an article on geckos for a ma- uh, and submitted it to a magazine called Geo, which doesn't yeah. exist anymore, not Australian Geographic. It's a Geo magazine. And surprisingly, they bought it and uh, wrote me a nice letter because everything's done by a letter, you no know, computers or typewriters. Yeah. If I used to handwrite my stuff and give it to somebody who could type it. Wow. And they wrote back and um, um, said, Yeah, you know, $750. Thanks for your story. And we'll, you know, half payment now and half. And, and that that was in the mid 70s. So $750 then would have been like, you know, here's $3,500 or something for your story, which was, yeah, sure inspired me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What was it like back then um, photographing? Because obviously, this day and age, everyone shoots digital. So, well, you know, you can all. spray and pray. Yeah. So, you would have had it to. All.
2: It was all film. So, you don't every time you press the button, yeah, money. Yeah, exactly. Click, dollar, 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 dollar. Um, my first camera was a Pentax Spotmatic F. I wouldn't even recognize one if I saw one now. Um, but for most of my film photography, I was using the Olympus. OM2N series, which were really good. Yeah, they had great lenses and you know a, a, a telescopic extension rings to get in close, ring flashes, and various bits and pieces. And I sort of got dragged kicking and screaming into the digital world, you know, like an old fuddy-duddy, and I didn't want yep. to, but you know that's what happens—you know, sink or swim.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it would have been pretty hard back then because you would have had to look after all the film and make sure it didn't get damaged well, when you were changing out in the field. And
2: I did trips um, trips overseas where I'd take 60 rolls of film. Wow. And that <laughs> big box of film, you know, you don't want it heat affected, you don't want it, yep, X-ray, you want it right. X-rayed as few times as possible travelling through international borders, you don't want to lose it. Yeah. Um, Kodachrome 64 ASA was my film of choice, and once you'd got home, when you bought your film, it came in a little paper uh, of plastic cylinder with the film roll in it, a yeah. uh, yellow envelope, and you would write the address of Kodak on the envelope and just whack your film in the mail. Pfft, off it would go. About two weeks later, you get a nice little yellow box in the mail from Kodak with all your slides in it. Wow! And then you would sort them all out, and oh god, you know there's an underexposure, you know. Um, so when I was going, when I was on a big trip, and you've done a lot of role for film, I'd always try and look at the last one first when I got them all back. If I got them all back as a batch, I want to find the last one first. If the last one's okay, it means there's been no malfunction going through all of the rest of the stuff, you know?
0: Yeah.
2: If the last one's a complete dead loss, you know, oh, my God, you go to the second line, you know, see if something went wrong somewhere. Mercifully, that never happened to me, but that was my principle, always looking at the last one first. I've still got all of those transparencies. Oh, that's awesome. And I still use them. Yeah. Um, I store them in the Queensland Museum because it's air-conditioned and and, uh, humid-controlled in the back of the vertebrate zoology collection. I've got a little shelf there, or a fairly big shelf actually. There's a lot of slides and wooden boxes all labelled. And, um, yeah, if I I need them, they're there. I've got my scanner sitting right beside me and – uh, f- it's it works it pretty well. I don't know whether you're familiar with the second edition of my Queensland field guide with the calia rhomboidalis, the red and blue throat on the front cover. Well, that's scanned off a slide from my scanner. Oh, really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> wow. There you go. What, what we might have of a look at that one after this,
1: yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> You've probably got a few on the shelf, Chase.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can't reach my bookshelf now. I'm just <laughs> shuffling the room around. Yeah. So.
2: <laughs> I like reptile books. This is some of them behind me here. Yeah, and uh, there's another whole batch over to my to my
0: right. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely my other addiction. <laughs> these reptile books. Oh, yeah. Good, good, so. good. Bye,
2: bye, bye, bye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so you said that when you were traveling around, when you initially started, you you went out in the Volkswagen and you got your new. You did you kind of. Coming through across a few other modes of transportation, in particular to get to some of these really remote areas. Here well, went. hitchhiking. Yeah.
2: I uh, did a lot of hitchhiking. Uh, hitchhike from Perth to Cairns and back, Perth, uh, Melbourne to Darwin and back. Um, yeah, a lot of hitchhiking. A lot of hitchhiking.
0: How did some of those stories go down when you told people what you were doing in the area?
2: Well, some of getting a car. I remember when I was a kid, we'd hitchhike out from. Where I live with my parents, out to the western Basalt plains in Melbourne, a hitchhike back with bags of tiger snakes. Now, <laughs> people have picked up, never knew what was in the bags.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> probably a wise move not to tell <laughs> them. Yeah. No, so, yeah. Yeah. so as, as far as like transport, that's one thing. But what, what sort of crucial items did you used to take out with you? And did you bring anything with you that most herpers would probably consider a little bit unusual?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, oh. Um, yeah, I do carry most people, if, if you're a reptile photographer, you probably think it was a good thing to carry, but the little plastic pot plant lids, you know, bases. Yep. I carry several of those when, I, when, I, when I'm travelling still, and I did then too with a little mouse hole cut out of one little rim because they're ideal to get a little snake to curl up under it for photography. Yeah. So I'd have a whole bunch of those of different sizes. Um, Other than that, I I just carry the normal sort of camping gear and and that sort of stuff, yeah.
1: That's a question I like to throw in there, because every now and then somebody gives you something that you just never considered normal. What sort of things have you heard of? Oh, like for instance, like when, um, was it Nipper that we had on? He, yes. he mentioned that he, he used to keep baby wipes in his backpack. Oh, He's okay. like, I wasn't sure if it was for him, but he did use them for himself as well. But at the same time, he was saying it's always good to, you know, remove feces off a snake or something like that in case oh, flies yeah. keep sticking to a snake. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
2: a good idea. I will
1: put that in my next kit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You know, like, I mean, I never considered it. And then when I was in Darwin recently, I used a hell of a lot of them.
2: Okay. So, right. yeah. oh, Okay.
1: Not a bad thing to
2: have. Oh, I'll bear that in mind.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what was kind of like the point where you decided to start making field guides? Like did you get approached by somebody or did you just start doing it yourself to Um, to put everything
2: together? The story was after I'd I'd done a couple of these magazine articles for Geo, I did the gecko one, I did one on goannas, I did one on snakes, I did one on Uh, cicadas because we had a great love for cicadas and while I was doing these living in Perth uh, my friend Dave Knowles and I um, started doing some really interesting overseas trips. We went into the got ourselves into the interior of Borneo into Kalimantan and um, Sulawesi and Sumatra and Java and Uh, peninsula malaysia and that sort of stuff and we got a lot of you know pretty interesting stuff a lot of amazing reptiles and frogs and insects and rainforest pictures and da 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 and we decided that we would do a book on tropical rainforests of southeast asia and the things that live in them so we spent ages cobbling some text together and pictures in retrospect it was absolute crap it really was you know i mean the pictures were Okay, the um, places we went were magnificent, but we really didn't have any direction for it, you know. There was no narrative in it. It was just, oh, let's put all these things in there and fill it up with captions. But anyway, we, we, we went to Sydney and we took the book draft. We got an appointment with William Collins Publishers and they sort of looked at it and, you know, kindly said to us, well, not really... But we were chatting in the office and one of us said, just blurted out, what about there doesn't exist in Australia a book with a photograph of everything? Oh, well, they said, if you could do that, we'd certainly be interested. So we scampered back to our little unit in Glebe in Sydney and sort of thought, well, you know, between you and me and the various other people, the various our network, we had just about everything that was named at that time. Yeah. This was in 1982 this conversation took place. So we um, we cobbled together a bit of a idea and took it to them and they bought it and sent us a $2,000 advance, half of which was spent on electric type or part of which was spent on electric typewriter. And then we thought, well, where should we sit down and write this And the biggest gap? That we had in our photography, we had WA pretty well covered for the time, yeah, and was Queensland. So we both shifted to Brisbane, and we wrote the Australia's Reptiles, the Wilson and Knowles. You know the book,
1: yeah, vaguely.
2: And, uh,
1: That's what I need. I don't need doors on my. Ah, uh, yeah, I
2: have seen that one. So um, that came out in 88, Um, but that was the first uh, sitting down and writing a species by species, maps, photographs, that sort of stuff. And that was because we took this idea to William Collins Publishers that they didn't want, but had a conversation and turned up something they did want.
1: Imagine if that moment never happened. Like that would have been yeah. a complete game changer. Maybe you would have been in a
2: completely different trajectory well, in from, life. Well, I'd still be. I'd still be thinking the way I think. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't change my, um, you know, passion. But oh, I don't know what I may not have found a direction for. it. I think I would have because I was already and you know, I was amassing the images. Something had yeah. to come with those pictures somewhere. Yeah, it may so, may not have been a been field guys, so. though.
1: So, I mean, as you kind of alluded to there, you know, things obviously chop and change, you know, year to year as far as taxonomy and things Thanks goes very, in the very much. In, in the reptile world. So, how do you kind of keep up with it all and and all the species changes and new species being discovered?
2: Well, I guess there's a there's a there's a interconnected there's a network of people involved in taxonomy. If someone publishes something, we know about it. You hear about it. You know, you get it. You get a, you get the, the paper emailed to you in a PDF form by someone, you know. Yeah. You know about it. You do. Yeah. yeah like somebody's always got you. Yeah. yeah.
1: In mind for it. Yes, yes. Yes.
2: If something was published next week, I'd know about it by the following week if it was a new writing yep. description. And then does that get
0: your gears rolling to then go out and try and find it, or absolutely?
2: <laughs> um, I managed to find one of those things. Um, a month ago that was recent was named in late twenty twenty one. Yeah, There was a paper came out, you know, the skinks anomalopus, the long limbed, long bodied, short limbed. Well there was a paper that split some of those up and there's a group of them that are very worm like with no legs at all. Yeah. Got hived off into a different genus with two new, quite distinctive looking species named in that paper, and one of them's from a place called Lake Elphinstone in central Queensland. So I was on a trip up there, so with my wife we went to Lake Elphinstone and I hoofed up up the sandstone slope with a little hand rake and raked out this strange worm-like lizard. This was just in um, February. Yeah. And got got my first pictures of it. So, yeah, if something's named like that, I I want to... Try and find it. it. Yeah, for sure. I'm always happy using other people's pictures too. If I've got my own, I don't have to look for them, I just...
0: Yeah, exactly. I need
2: a picture now or for next week or next year, it's go to there. the finals, pull it out.
1: How, how does your wife find you doing all this stuff? Is she happy with you going off
2: and doing your thing? Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> if it's a nice place, if it's aesthetically pleasant and comfortable, you know, she likes coming too. She's prepared to put up with long drives and things. But if it's somewhere where its only redeeming feature is the animals, and the rest of it is hot and dusty and and you know abundant flies and mosquitoes, and no one who wasn't passionate would be even enjoying themselves there, yeah. then fair cop, you know she doesn't want really to go there. I did yeah, a couple enough. of years ago with some friends to eat the Booker on the eastern edge of the Simpson Desert, just on the Queensland side where the dunes start before they roll right through the interior. Eastern Limit for Thorny Devils and Gillen's Monitors and all that sort of stuff. And it was horrifically humid. There was the clay pans had water in them and just humidity coming off them and the the flies are in your eyes in the daytime and the mosquitoes are whining around your head at night. Now, seriously, no one, unless they really, really had a reason to sit through all of that, would go there at that time. year. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't
1: inflict that on anyone. Yeah, it can be pretty brutal. Yeah, sure.
0: especially the humidity and the mosquitoes. I think uh, the mosquitoes do a number on me, I reckon. Oh, so yeah. yeah, yeah, Got a few trips lined up that I'll have to deal with them, I reckon. we are you off to? Oh, me and Luke have been chatting about trying to get, like we spoke earlier about the, the oh, leaf oh, tails. Oh, the so. leaf tail
2: geckos,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that would be interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. There was an interesting discovery of one right near here a couple of years ago the southern leaf-tailed gecko, Sultura swaini, um, turned up at Mount Glorious, which is just on the edge of Brisbane here where herpetologists have been visiting that mountain for decades, being one of the most looked-at rainforests in Australia. Yeah. things had never been found there until about two or three years ago. Wow, well, of them. Yeah. There
0: you yeah, go. Oh, yeah,
2: there's things to find.
0: Yeah, let's yeah. yeah, out there and find them. <laughs>
1: Jason was a bit unfortunate that he couldn't come on the last trip, and yeah. it was kind of his his trip for his yeah. animals that he wanted to find. And I went along and, <laughs> and managed found to them. Clean up with
0: them. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, the thing about this one at Mount Glorious, there was a possibility that it could have been could have gone several different ways. Yeah, because leaf tails really do speciate out very readily. If there's an isolated population, as in Central Queensland with the Philuruses, you know, you get a, yeah. a mountain here. It's got one. It's got Isis. This one's got Championa. This one's got uh, Nephthys or something like that. And in Southeast Queensland, Mount Glorious is not connected to any other rainforest. So the big question was: Is this leaf tail? An isolated species. species has just turned yep. up or not. So none were collected, but we did get some tail tips for genetics. Yeah. So we got up there at night and collect, caught a couple and got some tail tip material that let the geckos go. And we found that they are swaying. Well, here's the three three possible scenarios. Mm. Brand new species tucked away. Established population, because a lot of people in Brisbane, people go up and let things go and do all sorts of things, you know. Was that yep. possible? Or was it just a range extension of existing swainon? Yeah. It turned out to be the latter. Yeah. But the genetics of it were different enough, not that it's a different species, but that's identifiable as a, as a subpopulation of swainite, so they weren't let go there from somewhere else. Yeah, okay. They're not identical to the Lamington ones or the main range ones or the Mount Tambourine ones. Yeah. They were just that little bit different as all those other ones are from each other as well. Yeah. It fits in Swain Eye. It's an it's a local population, population. that has been there a long time. That's pretty so interesting, though. Eh? Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, man. That's, yeah. That's, there's so many, yeah. There's so many possibilities. Yeah. I, I just need to get out and see some more stuff.
1: Sure. so, so it's something else that you've also done apart from just your field guides and your paperwork but you also created a children's book that was yeah. you know obviously a reptile book
2: yeah it's what a was, reptile book for kids yeah yeah what, well, what kind of made that come about well kid kids need a stimulating interest i had the how and why wonder book for reptiles when i was a kid and i used to ogle over it and look at all these things and uh, I look at it now and there's a lot of nonsense in it, but it was it stimulated my interest. Yeah. And so I think it's pretty important that kids have something written for them. It's not scientific, it's not complicated. but what I did was I just divided Australia into some of the major habitats and each double page spread had a background picture of a habitat, be it alpine or desert or rainforest or tropical woodland or something like that. And little boxes of the different species that live in those places, a little bit of a blurb about what, what sort of places they are, just a little bit of a potted coverage of what lives in Australia for kids. Get the yeah. of their parents to take them there,
0: yeah. Unless well, you could be inspiring the next, next, um, next lot of herb, that's right. herpers. So, you know, those kids often get forgotten about when it comes to um, books like that. You see a lot of the kids' books that get printed and. You know, it says carpet python, but there's a picture of a boa on there yeah, or something yeah, like that. Know, so know.
2: you know, I know it really gets me. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Know, I had to make it nice and you know accurate and readable. Yeah. Yeah. It's long yeah. Out of print now, which is a shame. But anyway, still out there if kids want to hunt it down somehow.
1: No, well, it's not just kids. I'm sure I need to hunt yeah. that one
2: down <laughs> too. <so. laughs> well, I did have a spare copy that I sold the other day to a seasoned old herpetologist in one of his yeah collection.
1: Yeah, there you go. Surely I'll be able to twist somebody's arm, put another book on the shelf. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so um, obviously another one of your major roles is uh, you're a fauna surve- and surveyor Sorry, in southeast Queensland. Mm-hmm. What, what's actually involved in that role? Because a lot of our listeners probably aren't too aware of that.
2: Well, sometimes when there's a... Proposed development, whether it's a mine or a road widening or something, there is a mandatory process that has to be gone through to before it proceeds. Or um, that involves, you know, uh, vegetation people looking at it, and reptile, you know, fauna people looking at, it, seeing what's there, um, and that's that's one of the things I do. Doesn't mean I'm in favour of the project, because generally I'm not. But um, it's a mandatory process, so you may as well have someone there who knows what they're looking at.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know it's. Uh, there's been quite a lot of people down my way, um, kind of jumping up and down in arms and stuff about some uh, new housing developments and things that are being built in Ingleside and stuff, where you know all these species are kind of. They've only got their little isolated pockets yeah. in places like this, like such as things like the Red Crown
2: Toadlets and that. Oh mm, God, that really gets me. Yeah.
1: yeah you yeah. know, Yet they're widening roads so they can get more cars down before they get the houses well, down. We don't.
2: We're not capable of, of doing the necessary compromises. You know?
0: That's right, yeah.
2: A subdivision goes in and everything goes, every tree, every bush, every animal, every plant is just wiped off the face of the earth. Yep. And then houses are packed in so close that none of that stuff will ever be able to recolonize it again. Yeah, exactly. These subdivisions on the edge of Brisbane, there's no room for a blue tongue to live in someone's garden there because there's just wall to wall houses. I find that really offensive, you know. Um, yeah. To be a realist, you know, we you know people need to live somewhere, and they're going to come what may. So you may as well do it in a in a in a um, sustainable, you know, environmentally. Um, responsible way you know bands of bushland with bands of housing or corridors or something you know some connectivity to other habitat so yeah. things can move through where you're living rather than just being wiped off the face of the earth
0: yeah i think that that's the same everywhere though even where i am I'm a little bit further north and all the new housing developments are the exact same every single tree is cleared any water source is completely cleared they don't yeah. any infrastructure for any of the native wildlife whatsoever which mm-hmm. is you know, that's one reason why I didn't want to buy in one of those areas no, because, no. you know, you don't get, you don't, there's not even as many birds flying around in those areas, I've noticed as well, because I've got a no. few mates that live in there. So,
2: the pattern I see in Brisbane, it may apply to you, but it certainly applies here, is that there's a higher diversity and abundance of wildlife, including reptiles, in the inner areas because they're established. Old Queenslanders, creeks running through the suburbs, you know, uh, not always native trees, some of their figs or jacarandas or whatever, but but there's, there's trees along the creeks, there's water dragons all the way along. In the outer suburbs, being blitzed, so you've got this like a donut with this dead area around the edges where the suburbs going <clears and throat> the bulldozers are knocking everything down. Yeah, and this inner area that's well established. Brisbane has a topography that does protect some of These steep gullies that just you know don't like to build on. Yeah, um and these have have this sort of level, level of um, diversity in them that's really quite remarkable. You know, within. Within ten, within five kilometres of where I work in the Queensland Museum, which is in the CBD, um, there is probably thirty odd species of reptiles. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I'd have to. Yeah, I'd have I not actually noticed that, but I, to be honest, I haven't really taken notice of it. But
2: Roma Street Parklands, the right in the CBD, you'll see carpet snakes there. You'll see, you know, a gazillion water dragons, water skinks, a couple of species of turtles. Yeah, I'm
0: have to keep an eye for that. I think. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I can see. Yeah, I can see it being the same here too. On on the outer skirts of Sydney, compared mm. to some of the inner inner suburbs of Sydney. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Perth's yeah. in an unfortunate situation because uh, the bulk of Perth is on a uh, extraordinarily um, uh, biologically diverse sand plain, and sand plains don't have any obstacles to development on. You just out they go. Yep. So Sydney has your, your Sydney sandstones. There's gullies and stuff in Sydney that just because of the fact that they exist as gullies, you know, no one can build on them. You've got those in Sydney. Yeah. You've got that in Brisbane. Perth doesn't have that obstacle to obscene development, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. Mm. That's anyway, unfortunate. We make ourselves too sad, will we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so while, while we are still talking about the – um the fauna surveying role yeah. that you do have. You, yeah. You've actually implemented some really efficient um, monitoring systems on pipeline construction yeah. sites.
2: That's has yeah. incredibly interesting stuff. Um, if you're doing fauna work, um, one of the techniques is a pit trap. I'm not sure whether you or your listeners know what a pit trap is, but in case you don't, uh, a simple pit trap is you dig a row of holes with buckets sunk to ground level. And you run a little drift fence, a fence a flywire mesh right across the top of the buckets and things wander along, hit the fence and nose their way along and fall in the buckets and you go out, you know, multiple times a day and you pull out all sorts of stuff you wouldn't normally find so easily. Well, um, the gas pipeline trenches I worked on are giant pit traps and an awful lot of stuff falls in. Um, yeah the longest one I worked on went for 940 clicks. Wow. From just east of Roma in Queensland through to the desert in Moomba in South Australia. And um, there's just so much stuff falls in. So the question is how do you monitor it? Now, obviously it's not 940 k's all at once. That's just ridiculous. So what they're doing, they're digging a pipeline trench And then some kilometres behind that, they're burying pipe in and filling it in. So once it's filled in, it's not an issue. It's that gap in between the excavation and the filling in, which can stretch out to 30 or 40 k's. Yeah. Now, it's not a continuous 30 or 40 k's because they've got to ramp it up every k or so and ramp it down so stuff like kangaroos, cattle, snakes and lizards can get out. but stuff does go in there and stay there. So what I worked out when they make these pipeline, when they constructed a, a pipeline, they've got multiple, um, hessian bags full of sawdust that they set the pipes on before they weld them together and drop them in the trench. So I was getting mm, hundreds of these sawdust filled hessian bags and dropping them in the trench every hundred meters propped up against the wall of the trench. And in very hot weather, I'd wet them. And they were visual distance apart along the 30 Ks. So with a metal hook from the top and a long-handled hoop bag and a a long-handled snake hook, and a a stick stuck on the side of the trench beside each bag so I'd know where it was. And I, would in my car, drive to that bag look over the edge of the trench, look both ways to so see if I could see anything, lift the bag back and there'd be lots of snakes and lizards under there and yep. marsupials and native rodents and all sorts of stuff like that and then get them out, re- record the numbers and what they were and the GPS data, let them go and move on to the next bag and do that and I'd do that the whole way along throughout the day. And then towards the end of the day, I'd be getting to where they dug new trench that day. So I'd drop bags in at the end of the day where they'd been working. And the last of these jobs I worked on was on, on, on the Barclay between from Tennant Creek to about 250 k's to the east of Tennant Creek. And one day we got 600 and something vertebrates out of the trench. God, wow. Yeah, a lot of geckos, a lot of uh, the um, various um, burrow plug geckos, knocktail geckos, um, womers, uh, big mulga snakes, and western browns and ringed browns and blind snakes and shovel nose snakes, and loads of agamids. Mm. While
1: you're talking about that stretch there, do you find that the ciliaris there are a bit different to one the stuff that are up north?
2: Um, the ciliaris, they, that was the most numerous animal we got on that job.
1: <laughs> yeah. Doesn't surprise me.
2: We got over 3,000 ciliaris.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's probably a bigger didn't number more than I thought
2: ciliaris. Though. Yeah. They were just everywhere. Um, and I did I've often written in my books sometimes when you're writing so in your books you're often narrating from previous references of someone else and sometimes things can get perpetuated and you're not really sure how true they are but you keep writing it because everyone else in previous books has done it and you're quote, quoting a text the squirting of goo and meter well they do yeah they can do it I saw it <laughs> So that's, yeah, yeah. But I, I, as far as how different they are, well, there was a paper written many, many years ago by Arnold Kluge We split ciliaris into about five or six different quite identifiable populations. Um, one of those is now um, um, Chris chrysalis from central Queensland, inland Queensland, One of them is Strophurus ciliaris aberrans from northwestern Australia, ciliaris ciliaris. So, yeah, you know, they are. You do see differences across the place. I didn't see those as being strikingly
1: different. Okay. That's good to know. I was just speaking to a few people and after they saw a few of my photos and stuff like that, they were convinced that it was something a bit different. But, you know, everyone likes to speculate anyway. I need a bit
2: more work. There could be a few more things tucked away in ciliaris.
1: Yeah, I agree. Definitely a big big population, especially if there's 3,000 of those in that one job, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. they were everywhere. They were everywhere.
1: Yeah, I was was impressed with finding like half a dozen.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I did with the pipelines and that became sort of um, well adopted by others.
1: Well, it seems like it obviously works, you know, if you're giving –
2: with you know relative i wouldn't say relative ease because it's very hard you're traveling doing a lot of driving and often in very hot weather and uh but you you are able to monitor extended stretches of this stuff yeah and get you know most things out yeah, yeah well it's good results yeah so.
1: Do you so you know back on the kind of topic of you know herping stories? Obviously, spending so much time out there in the field and in the bush and stuff, you've you've surely got a few kind of scary moments up your sleeves. Where
2: scary moments, yeah. Um, Let me see. I went into a little park in Tananarive in Madagascar, and the kids in the park were killing chameleons for fun whacking them with sticks, and I, um, I saw a mating pair of chameleons that these kids were about to whack, so I sort of got in amongst them and said, oh, ho, ho, ho. joke, joke, joke. They didn't speak English. I didn't speak Malgash, um, but I sort of, with a big grin on my face, sort of took these two chameleons and found a really big prickly bush they couldn't get at, sort of dropped them in there and rattled it so they all fell down. And then I realized that these kids had started to surround me, they all had rocks. You know, these were really pretty hardened sort of street kids. And I'd walked in the middle of them and I sort of thought, What the heck have you done now, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> so, Grinning, ah ha ha, and sort of back out and managed to get myself out. But that was a bit, a bit tricky. Sometimes you sort of act without thinking of the consequences. You know? Yep. Another time with a mate of mine, we were on the um, Mexico-Arizona border spotlighting at night and um, there's all these signs that was in one of the national parks, Organ Pipes National Park, I think it was called, right on the border and there were signs, you know, report suspicious movements, don't approach any strangers, da-da-da. Anyway, so we're in the middle of this sort of cactus desert, along this little arroyo, it's what they call, a little dry creek beds there. We found a couple of nice um, diamondback rattlesnakes there. It was lovely. Spotlighted them, curled up. And then we heard Spanish being spoken very close to us. Now, 100% they would have been migrants coming across the border from Mexico. More than likely, they would have been just people trying to get a bit of life in the US. But they are often led by people that really are pretty heavy people. Yeah, their guides, and it would be very likely that they would have one of these guides ushering them through the border. And here we were out in the middle of nowhere, and 100%, if they'd have heard us, they would have thought we were there to catch them. Why else yeah. would we be there in the desert at night? With spotlights. and Sneaking around the bush. Yeah. We sort of, ooh, this could be awkward, and sort of turned off our torches and sort of tiptoed back along towards the car and shot through. But that was a worrying moment as well. Yeah, that
0: would be for sure, that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty hairy, that area sometimes.
2: From it was an the area trip. I saw an awful lot of amazing reptiles in three weeks in Arizona, i tell you. It was brilliant.
1: What, what, was, what were some of your highlights from that trip?
2: Um, stalking a lizard called a Scaloparus. They're these lovely, um, about the size of a Jackie dragon, bright blue and purple on them, and this sort of fence lizards, they call I was stalking one of those, and I heard. <laughs> and looked down; was a beautiful banded rock rattlesnake curled up at my feet. So that was. Like, <laughs> and perhaps the high point was um, I was there with a good friend of since our teenage years, Mike Swan. You're probably very aware of his work and his books and stuff too. Yeah, and we were really keen to find a horned lizard, and uh, we had a bet going: or whoever finds one, the other guys to buy him a meal. I was walking across this stony flat and this beautiful little round tailed hornless little pebble mimic just sort of shuffled and moved, so I just called out, Nachos. (laughs) (laughs) You knew exactly what I meant.
0: Uh, It's always good to have a bit of banter. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Great
2: fun.
1: Right, so uh, I suppose on the on the flip side of that though, you must have some pretty fond memories of some of the places that you've visited over the years oh, as well.
2: Absolutely, oh, I've, I've still got a great fondness for Alice Springs and um, Wet Tropics, Girraween National Park on the the New England Tableland where it pokes into Southern Queensland. Reptiles everywhere there. It's just fantastic. Lots of leaf tailed geckos, lots of dragons, lots of Lots of reptiles there and beautiful scenery. You go there in spring, it's a blaze of colour as well. You know. uh, the, um, the sand plains of Perth, what's left of them, are just fantastic. When I lived over there, it was um, we were looking for jewel beetles, photographing orchids, photographing reptiles. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant place. Um, overseas, I spent three months in Madagascar and I've just got so many fond memories of there. It's tragic with the destruction that's been going on over yeah. there. But the you get into areas that are intact, and you're just walking into this strange new world of different characters. You know, it's just gorgeous all the little p- tiny leaf chameleons and weird snakes everywhere, and um, the Namib Desert. I fell in love with the Namib Desert in Namibia extremely harsh, any place I've ever been where you could look all around and not see a stick of vegetation. Wow. Just mobile dunes, and yet, you know, there was a Peringue's um, Viper buried up to its eyeballs in the in the shade of a what had been a fence that the sand had moved over and buried. Weird little lizards, I don't know whether you saw them in David Attenborough's docos, these little lizards that do this sort of footwork. With
0: oh, yep. Yeah,
2: yeah were running around on the dune tops and stuff. So that was lovely. Um, Yeah, look, there's just so many wonderful places, so many, so many. Tasmania, lovely places in Tassie. Not as diverse as other places, but in some of them you've just just got huge numbers of reptiles. Skinks everywhere. Same in the Victorian Alps, around Mount uh, Falls Creek. I've been around there and the skinks are virtually sort of parking before you on a really nice, cool but sunny morning, you know, 12 degrees but sunny and no wind and the sunny side of the tussocks is all these lovely little skinks, It you know? doesn't have to be big showy things all the time. Yeah. I'd no. be watching a gecko on a wall. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah there's uh, this, this trip that we did up to um, – where do we go? We went washpool National Park and, yeah. and Dorigo and stuff. We we were going to take an extra night and it, try to push up to Giruwen, but the road was closed to get up there, so yeah, we we didn't quite make it there. But I, that was the first time that I'd ever been to some of that granite country. And oh yeah, that's yeah. so impressive.
2: Lo- lovely Cunningham skinks that live there. The the New England Cunningham skinks, beautiful.
1: Yeah. I'm seeing some of these big boulders and
2: yeah, you know, it's magnificent. That's why I love it so much because you got reptile diversity against a scenically grand backdrop as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's beautiful stuff. I think I'm. I know my wife's <laughs> trying to push to go towards uh, WA next time. She wants to go see Karajini National Park.
2: Oh, so. that's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah, I've been in there. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm.
0: Is there one species that has eluded you every yes. time you've gone out yes. to look for it? <laughs>
2: I mean, I've only really probably looked for it a couple of times yeah, and it's eluded me and it, it's my bugbear. There's a couple actually. Yeah. Um, one is the little cryptogamma orita a or little pebble mimic dragon from the Kimberleys. And I went out to the tight locality with some friends and colleagues of mine um, which is near Halls Creek, and we had an idea of how to look for them. It didn't work, but I still think it's a good idea. And that was two people walking about sort of three metres apart with a loose rope with a couple of plastic milk bottles tied to it. Yeah. drag on a third person who's walking behind looking because if these things move, you're in with a chance. Yeah. Anyway, it didn't work, but, you know, I'd really like to find one of those. The other one is a legless lizard in Perth called Pletholax. Hyper thin, very strongly keeled, pygopoded with a yellow throat and a sharp nose. and It's like a live piece of wire. Wow. I never did find one in the six years I lived in Perth. Every time I've gone back, I've gone out looking for them, but they're pretty hard things to look for. Presumably, very common from those that do fauna survey stuff with pit traps. They get them fairly often. Yep. Gotta be lucky. It's just like some of those things,
1: right? You just get to be in the right place at the right time.
2: Yep, 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 yep. Another one that I really wanted to find and I did find by by good fortune is the um, uh, the Gascoigne pebble mimic Eelus Dragon, which lives only in the Gascoigne region of WA. Timbenacryptus Gygas. Uh Eelus dragons are famous for some of them are famous for their camouflage because they're little Pebble mimics on the stony plains and things like that, and this one lives on quartz plains, so it's white. Wow. Yeah, wow. And be uh, yeah, it is something. It is something. And I was there with a friend of mine a couple of years ago. We've been up to Yunnithero to photograph the Yunnithero rock dragon, which is only found on one area, and this thing's found peripheral to that on the on the um, quartz gibber. And every now and then we'd be driving across this just sea of blinding white quartz. i say, stop the car, I can't stand, I've got to look for these things. I'd get out and start randomly turning stones. For the <laughs> and then one hot afternoon I said, we should maybe have a look under the shade of the acacias. So we just sort of walked and stood under a couple of acacias and shuffled around and bingo, this little white dragon. Beautiful. Wow. Mm, very, that was... That'd be the high point of the last decade for me, I think, finding... Yeah,
0: it's almost like a needle in a haystack. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
2: just because it moved. If it moved, not a chance. I wouldn't have found the round-tailed horned lizard if it hadn't moved either.
0: Makes you wonder how many times you've walked over them. Oh, absolutely.
1: They haven't moved. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes with a lot of reptiles, though, (laughs) right? I've always
2: wondered what I've walked past. Yeah, definitely. What's under the stone you didn't turn?
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, especially like, a lot of those little dragons, they, they can just match their environment so easily, yeah. especially when they're warm. You know, they yeah. have that ability to change colours very quickly. Yeah, to... that's
2: right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, another fun place I have, of course, is the Metro Plateau and the Kimberleys. The clear water flowing across sandstone pavement and superb dragons, bright green in the overhanging vegetation. it's you know? lovely. Yeah, that's one place I want to get to. No, I never good, did obviously. find a rough-scale python there either. It's another thing I'd like to find.
1: In the so haven't quite ticked off all the pythons that...
2: No, yet. no, no, no. No, no <laughs> quite I, haven't, I haven't seen the rough-scale or the Owen Pelly.
1: Ah, uh, I got to see one of those a few weeks ago. Oh, nice! a few weeks ago. Nice. Yeah, yeah that same trip that I was on, um, yeah, we managed to get incredibly lucky. I can't say how incredibly lucky we were, but, yeah, we got to see a nine-foot individual within Whoa. about two, mi- two minutes of looking.
2: Oh, really?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> probably made a lot of people very jealous with that, yeah, unfortunately, you left, but, but right. you know, right place, right time. Yeah,
2: fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Well, mind you, I'd have more chance if I went to Kakadu, wouldn't
1: I? <laughs> it does help. It does <laughs> <laughs>
2: But I'll have, yeah. to, I'll have to go there and have another look for it. I mean, I have been there and looked for it. I'm not saying, do I wish I could find something I haven't even looked for. Yep. It yeah. It
1: doesn't count. No. I'd love to go to the Mitchell Plateau as well. There's so many species yeah. up there that oh, are just, just gorgeous.
2: incredible. Yep, yeah. Harsh, you know, long way, corrugated roads, you know, it's an effort. Yeah, but worth and it. Sometimes, you know, going through the effort really heightens the feeling of reward. Mm. I mean, you get no reward for your own belly python. No effort. You just get out of your car, and there it is. And then if you've been there for four days, no. I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. that it's, it's well deserved. yeah. I, I'm, I'm happy to have a stab thrown at me like that. By all means, <laughs> uh, you're not the first to give it to me. So, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I was uh, on that trip though. I, I was incredibly. My biggest thing is I, I love Gillen's monitors. I've got oh, okay. I've got about a do- I don't know, about a dozen or so here oh, okay. at the moment. Mm. Um, and I went to went down to like Ylara and down that region looking for them yep. last year and mm. and struck out very hard. But I was lucky that I was with a with a fella that knew a spot in a particular area and um, yeah, got to see one of those guys in the wild. So you know. Sweating my bum off uh, on a couple of trips to try to find them was yeah. awesome. You know yeah. when I did finally get to see them.
2: Lovely, they really are lovely. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I looked for those was on the Ether Booker trip because I did want to get one from photograph one from within Queensland. Yeah. Which is Ether Booker's just their eastern limit. Um, but I was reluctant to sort of rip bark off dead mulga because dead mulga yeah. doesn't put bark back. Exactly. So I took hammer and nails with me. And any bark I lifted back, I'd, I'd whack it back again, so it's it's still there as habitat.
1: Yeah, well, that, that's a great tip for anybody that is potentially going to do that, because that was one thing that kind of d- destroyed me a little bit, seeing in uh, the region that I first looked down in Yalara is a lot them, of those
2: ripped them all off. Rip, rip, rip. I,
1: I hadn't personally, no. but yeah. you know, as pretty much as far as a human could reach up these trees, was completely bare.
2: Yeah, people looking for things. Yeah. 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 No, bark is something that's really, it's really difficult to investigate. I'm so careful looking under bark these days, um, because it doesn't grow back. You know. Yeah. Uh, A dead tree once it's lost its bark, it's. So yeah, the the hammer and nails, just a little, you know, just little nails, and you pull the bark back and then tap it back into place. Yeah. Yeah. That's a it's a
1: good idea. Good tip. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. Now, this has been an absolute awesome yeah. chat. Jase, do you have anything else that you want to throw
2: Steve's way?
0: Um, not really, no. Well,
2: no. keep up the good work, fellas. This has been yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah, great no. to
0: chat. So. Oh,
2: we, we, pleasure. Great pleasure. always. Right. We, we I like to share my keenness. I like to speak to other keen people as well.
1: Oh, it's. A, I think that's the important thing, right, is, you know, we're all in it for the same reasons essentially, you know. That's we love right. these animals and we yep. love the habitats they come yep. from. So to be able to talk with like-minded people is, is awesome.
0: Yeah, right. and time flies too when you're having fun. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> that's it.
2: Okay, um, fellas, thank, thanks for uh, inviting me on. It's been a great pleasure to chat to you and I hope your listeners have had a bit of fun listening to this.
1: Oh no doubt, no doubt. Um, you know, if you have, if you well, with your next books, if you ever want to come on and give them a bit of a plug or anything like that, well, give a plug now. In, and in
2: go for it. In May, my third edition of the Field Guide to Reptiles of Queensland will be out. Awesome.
0: awesome. Uh, we have, have a, pre-orders available for that, or
2: yeah, you can just contact me via Facebook, and I'll send you my email details and that sort of stuff. And anybody can get in touch and order copies. Yeah. That sounds good. Excellent. I can't give you a price yet because so I'm not sure what the price will be. That's determined <laughs> by the publishers.
0: Yep. Oh, but if yeah, you're a book collector, the out, price doesn't out. matter.
2: I signed off on <laughs> it a month and a half ago, and they reckon we will be out by mid to late May, which I think could be a whisker optimistic, but it'll, it shouldn't be too long after that.
0: Yep. It's
1: awesome. still pretty close, really, in yeah. the yeah. of things. a yeah, take for now, so. Uh, awesome. Great. Right. All right, Steve, well, okay. thank you so much for coming on. We've really appreciated appreciate this. Good we'll, idea. Uh, we'll sign off now. Okay,
2: signing off. See you later. Thanks a lot. See you, Steve. Bye-bye.
1: All righty, guys, so we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at Make sure to follow the NPR network on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As far as contacting us in our social media platforms, you can email us at AustralianHeptoculture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at the Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, Teespring, and Teespring Beaches Beecher Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Hope to Podcast. Good night everyone.